The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Casey Michelle, who is a journalist whose work has appeared in Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Vox, The New Republic and Politico magazine. And he is the author of an amazingly timely book, called American Kleptocracy, How the US Created the Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. And this book is particularly interesting on the subject of Ukraine, which, of course, is the only story that anybody wants to talk about in the world at the moment. And your book, Casey, details quite extensively the curious financial ties and very shady financial ties between Ukraine and America. First of all, I want to say, obviously, you know, nobody wants to benefit financially out of a terrible situation like this. But you must be pretty struck that your book is more relevant than ever now. Yeah, uh, Freddie, obviously, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And obviously, thank you for the kind words for the uh, the book. And I, you know, as we were just talking off mic, one of the few silver linings of all the horrors we've seen out of Moscow's invasion over the past few weeks is suddenly, you know, there's this, this realization of the relevancy and the salience of why it is important to follow these transnational oligarchic money laundering networks. And then beyond that, the kind of national security threats that you know, certainly those of us who've been covering this and uh, working on this angle for years and years have been kind of banging our drums about that it's not just shell companies. It's not just, you know, hidden ledgers and, and, and subterranean financial flows. There are very real human costs, both in the U.S. as well as in Ukraine. And beyond that, the broader national security threats, the broader lack of stability and, and you know, elements of destabilization that we're now seeing play out in Moscow's invasion. You know, it's horrible that it's come to this point, but I'm glad folks are finally paying attention to this. I mean, I'm talking to you from London, and it's well known that London has been a centre of dodgy Russian money coming in and being sort of laundered through our real estate property market and so on in London and through various businesses. In America, and particularly in relation to Ukraine, it's interesting, is it? Because it's not necessarily the most glamorous spots, Manhattan, Washington, Miami, etc. It's it's the Rust Belt places. Yeah. It's And it's Cleveland, Ohio is a very yeah. important part. Could you begin by telling us a little bit of a story about what happened in Cleveland, Ohio, and focus sure. in particular on this very intriguing figure of Eeyore Kolomyovsky. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely, Freddie. I mean, this is one of the, the primary case studies in the book is following a Ukrainian oligarch named Igor Kolomoisky, who listeners may be familiar with it at this point. You know, he was a, a Ukrainian oligarch, really a titan of multiple Ukrainian industries for years in steel, in banking and other natural resources. And he, he rose to prominence, I think, most especially in the mid-2010s after the initial invasion of Ukraine by, by Russian forces. He actually created this militia underneath him in central Ukraine to effectively beat 
back Russian invaders. I mean, he was actually a pillar of Ukrainian sovereignty, Ukrainian statehood in the mid-2010s. But as a reformist government came to power after the revolution in 2014, they began looking into his books. They began looking a little bit closer into his finances. And at, at the time, his main revenue source was actually overseeing one of the country's biggest banks, Privat Bank, which was the largest retail bank in Ukraine at the time. And what these reformist investigators discovered is that while he was posing as this Ukrainian patriot, while he was posing as this kind of savior of Ukrainian nationhood, he was also allegedly pillaging the Ukrainian population, pillaging Ukrainian depositors to the tune of five and a half billion dollars missing from the coffers of what were supposed to be in Privat Bank's accounts. That is to say, you know, the, the investigators, the reformers, they kind of opened the cupboards and they realized it was just bare. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult to kind of wrap our minds around what a five and a half billion dollar hole actually looks like when you're discovering this. And again, I was talking with some of the investigators for the book, interviewing them, and this just kind of stunning realization that this, the hole in the center of the budget of one of the primary pillars of the Ukrainian financial sector is just missing. So the question becomes, what the hell happened to that money? Where did it go? How did it move? How is it hidden? And how is it that this was working for years and years as this transnational money laundering carousel? You know, Freddie, I, I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but I will say that a good chunk of it didn't end up in these places that we associate with modern oligarchic wealth. It didn't end up in London or in Miami or in New York. It ended up in, all, of all places, Cleveland, Ohio. And again, nothing against Cleveland, Ohio. It's, it's a lovely city with lovely restaurants and bars, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not exactly the place that you think of. When you think of modern oligarchic wealth, you know, these ultra high net worth individuals, the globetrotting elites, they don't necessarily always go to places like Ohio. They don't go to places like these small towns in the Rust Belt, in states like West Virginia. Virginia, states like Kentucky, states like Illinois that we know Kolomoisky and his network also went into, pouring their money into it, hiding their money within this, purchasing commercial real estate buildings, purchasing steel plants and manufacturing plants. Again, this is part of a far broader story of Kolomoisky's network, how he was moving this money, how he was hiding this money. But at the end of the day, he wasn't going to these traditional havens that we associate with these lives of luxury. He was hiding it where no one was looking. He was hiding it where no one would ever expect. And again, this is just one case study out of one country. This is one oligarch out of Ukraine. We know these oligarchic figures have emerged from places like Russia, places like Kazakhstan, places like Azerbaijan, obviously places like Ukraine as well. But in addition to places like Nigeria, places like Malaysia, places like Cameroon and Gabon, that are still blanketed. All these networks are blanketed in so much anonymity, so much financial secrecy. That, as I argue, Kolomoisky is really the, the kleptocratic canary in the coal mine. If he's going to Cleveland, Ohio to hide all of his money, where are the rest of these oligarchs going? And what are the costs on the ground in the U.S., in the U.K., and elsewhere? Well, and as you suggested a little bit there, I mean, a place like Cleveland and some of these very depressed, often Rust Belt areas are perfect because people are desperate for money. They're desperate for investment. Yeah. And so fewer questions are asked. I'm sure yeah. boxes were left unticked and so on. Yeah. I mean, he, he knew what he was doing. I was going to say, you know, Freddie, this is the, there's kind of two dynamics at play. You know, on the one hand, you're exactly right. These are, especially after 2008, thoroughly destitute areas that are looking for any kind of investment whatsoever. You know, one of the Cleveland city councilmen, he said, it was like bringing water to someone who's dying of thirst. You know, these investors come in tied to Kolomoisky. They're not saying that this is, you know, linked to one of the country's biggest Ponzi schemes. Again, a five and a half billion dollar loot job. They're saying they're coming in with new investments because they want to revitalize the local economy. 
They want to bring jobs back. They want to restore that economic vitality, again, in places like Cleveland, but also all of these small towns. They come in and purchase these really economic crown jewels, these, these steel plants, these, these manufacturing plants, and say, we're going to bring the jobs back. We're going to bring these economic lifebloods back to life. And those on the ground, you know, they can't afford to look this gift horse in the mouth. They can't afford to say no because they are just dying for any kind of investment. So you're, you're absolutely right, Freddie. They go out of their way to welcome this money, to open the doors. The money does come in, but it's only on paper. The jobs don't come back. These assets, these office buildings, these steel plants, manufacturing plants, they continue falling apart. They continue actually damaging the American steel workers that are being bombarded by all this environmental destruction. And in some cases, actual beams falling and breaking their backs. I mean, this is on the one hand, it's a very tragic story for these folks that are working there and expecting revitalization and renewed economy. That's one part of it. The other part of it is that the American real estate sector, the broader American investment sector itself, as we've seen in the United Kingdom, as we've seen in other Western jurisdictions, they didn't have the kind of regulatory oversight to even require those on the ground to check where that money is coming from, to check whether that money is actually part of a broad $5.5 billion Ponzi scheme, whether it's part of any of these oligarchic networks we've had in the United States. This two-decade-long exemption for American real estate, for residential real estate, for luxury real estate, as well as for commercial real estate, a two-decade-long exemption from any kind of basic anti-money laundering due diligence, any basic anti-money laundering requirements. You know, that is to say that, again, you're exactly right. Those on the ground had no incentive to ask where the money was coming from because they were starved for cash. But on the other hand, there was no legal reason for them to do so otherwise. There's no policy in place that would even encourage them to ask where that money is coming from, to do any kind of basic due diligence into the source of these funds and into this network and whether or not they should actually be doing business with a figure like Mr. Kolomoisky in the first place. Well, Kolomoisky was hailed after 2014 as a great Ukrainian patriot because he formed this militia, really. He bankrolled this militia, which would prove to be very effective at fighting the Russians. Now, in this current moment that we're living in, there is a lot of enthusiasm for President Zelensky and a lot of support, understandable and, and often righteous support for the Ukrainians in defending their country. But I do wonder, especially having read your book, whether we're getting sort of swept up in this moment and forgetting that corruption in Ukraine is on all sides. And Kolomoisky was a backer of Zelensky, was clearly a figure who should be treated with some suspicion. And one wonders, probably have to get this legal, but one wonders whether, I mean, was his patriotism entirely pure? Or did he realise that by allying himself with anti-Russian forces in Ukraine, he was making himself very valuable to the West. Yeah, no, Freddie, that's an excellent question. And I think the lesson from working on this book, from studying oligarchs from around the region for year after year after year is, at the end of the day, there is no such thing as a pro-Western oligarch. There's not even necessarily something as a, a pro-Russian or a pro-Putin oligarch. The thing to remember is that these oligarchs are out only for themselves. They're out only in the interests of their business, their wealth, their assets, and their portfolio. And I think Kolomoisky is a perfect case study for this. Again, 2014, 2015, he refashions himself as this kind of super patriot, you know, the one who is coming again to the defense of Ukrainian sovereignty and Ukrainian statehood. 
I didn't include this in the book because it was too recent to report, but what we saw just a few years ago is he actually has now refashioned himself yet again as these investigations continued, as things like the United States sanctioned Kolomoisky directly. He is now publicly in favor of repairing that breach between Moscow and Kiev and bringing Ukrainians and Russians together once more. I, I don't have the direct quote in front of me. I'll have, I'll have to paraphrase, but he had this interview with the New York Times two years ago where he said, NATO needs to be quaking in its boot. It is going to be soiling its diapers as soon as the Russians move in. And Ukrainians need to understand that we belong with Russia. So again, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, unfortunately, but it was, he likes to use all of this colorful language to make his point. But all of that is to say, he is more than happy to turn to whichever patron he thinks will support him, support his assets, and support his network and portfolio. And as soon as the Ukrainian investigators began their investigation, or reformers began their investigation, as soon as the Americans followed suit and other partners elsewhere, he was more than happy to turn his fortunes back to Moscow. And it's going to be very, very interesting to see what he does in the coming days and weeks as Russia's invasion continues. I just wanted to mention one other thing. You were exactly right about his relationship with President Zelensky before the presidency. And I do discuss this in the book. He was, Kolomoisky, was the benefactor of the TV station. He was the owner of the TV station that launched Zelensky to prominence. Now, by all indications, the two have had a falling out over the last few years as Zelensky has pursued more oligarchic investigations and more pro-transparency reforms. It hasn't been enough. The Americans, I can certainly tell you, have been less than enthusiastic about the fact that there's still no formal investigation into Kolomoisky. I wouldn't be surprised if that changes sometime very soon following this invasion. But the two aren't nearly as close as they once were. But I will say to your point, you're exactly right. There has to be care taken. There has to be some kind of analytical approach as it pertains to who exactly we are funding, we are bankrolling, we are supporting in terms of that kind of broader oligarchic network and nexus. Because these figures haven't gone anywhere. They still mm. remain. And it would behoove us to make sure that we are doing our due diligence in so many areas about who it is that we're bankrolling, who it is that we're supporting. Obviously, all support to the Ukrainians, all support to President Zelensky right now. But when you get into the actual weeds of the certain militias or of certain oligarchic figures, we have to be careful about who we are bankrolling. Yes. And we should also be honest about the fact that we had the Panama Papers, the big Guardian expose that did show that despite his anti-corruption ticket, despite his anti oligarch appeal as a political candidate, he did himself have connections, links to large overseas deposits. And, you know, it's probably true to say you don't really get very far in Ukrainian politics without links to very dodgy people. Yeah. You know, fortunately or otherwise, I was just a child when the you know, collapse of the Soviet Union took place. And so it's been one of these kind of retrospective examinations, you know, as I've gone through in my career and understanding how it is that these oligarchs rose in the first place. And much of that responsibility, much of that culpability lies not just with those like Boris Yeltsin out of Moscow or, or early Ukrainian authorities in the 1990s, but much of it has to do with these Western partners that were willing to look the other way as this fire sale of assets, former Soviet-held assets, ended up in the pockets of these oligarchs in the 1990s and in the 2000s. And again, as those figures formed the kind of power base for these authoritarian regimes that rose in places like Russia, places like Ukraine, even though those were eventually thrown out via revolution, but also places like Kazakhstan, places like Uzbekistan, places like Azerbaijan, all of these post-Soviet authoritarian regimes have this oligarchic underpinning, much of which can be tracked back to that initial fire sale of assets in the 1990s. And certainly, again, I'm not in government, I'm, I'm not steering diplomacy or policy right now, but what is very clear is that that lesson, that willingness to look the other way and allow the accumulation 
of these significant national assets in the hands of such a small few, that cannot be repeated once more. As we move through and then eventually, hopefully beyond this war, there has to be far more focus on things like financial transparency, far more focus on things like anti-corruption funding, anti-corruption efforts and enforcement, both in places like Ukraine and Russia, as well as in places like the UK and the US. Because again, you know, this book that I write is about it's about kleptocracy. It's primarily about the U.S.'s transformation into this offshore haven. But it, that's not an atypical story. This is a transformation that also took place, as you just mentioned, Freddie, in London, in the U.K. It's taken place in the European Union. It's taken place in Canada, in Australia, to incentivize the inflows of all of this oligarchic wealth. You know, that formula has now ended in disaster. It's ended in tragedy in Ukraine, and that cannot be repeated. Otherwise, we will simply have another Putin-style figure emerge, whether it's in Russia or elsewhere. These are the lessons that we have to heed as we move forward. An expression that's been used a lot in the last five to ten years, since 2016 probably, is the deep state. And we talk a lot about deep state. And it occurred to me reading your book that in a country like Ukraine, the deep state is the kleptocracy. Everything that happened is driven by some financial interest against another. And this sort of connects to politics in America because you have, let's take the example of Trump, you have his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who is finally imprisoned for shenanigans, and, and he took money from, from Ukrainians. And you also have a kind of a security effort, but it's it's always very hard to read because you don't know whose side you're necessarily on because we don't understand the deep state in Ukraine. And a, a Western politician, someone like Lindsey Graham, just to pluck a name out of thin air, he's not going to understand <laughs> the dynamics of Ukraine, is he? No, I would suspect that Lindsey Graham, who has been a little bit less than, shall we say, secure in some of his tweets recently, may not have the best understanding of on-the-ground realities in Ukraine. Now, you're exactly right, Freddie. What we've seen out of Ukraine, similar to what we've seen out of Russia, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, many of these countries, certainly Belarus as well, over the past, at least up until the mid-2010s, was the rise of this oligarchic class and then the reliance within that on Western financial secrecy tools. You know, I was doing reporting for the book. I was in, you know, the small city of Cheyenne, Wyoming, which, you know, it's, it's a lovely area. It's the capital of Wyoming, which is one of the U.S.'s smallest states. And I was standing right out front outside this small house, little single family house in a lovely, you know, leafy neighborhood of Cheyenne, Wyoming, knowing full well that this house was the home of dozens of shell companies that the former Ukrainian prime minister had used to move hundreds of millions of dollars out of Ukraine without anyone knowing. I mean, again, this is just one network, one system, one policy failure from one country that is, again, part of a far, far broader phenomenon in and of itself. What has been remarkable to see out of Ukraine and has played a role in President Zelensky's administration and I would like to think will continue to play a role after that is this rise of less officials themselves, but the broader kind of reformist class in and of itself. Ukrainian civil society has really come into its own over the last five or six years. And, and by no means are they full-throated fans of Zelensky or his administration or his supporters. They know full well that President Zelensky is significantly better than what came previously, but they have been pushing and pushing and pushing for years and years and years, certainly after the 2014 revolution, to implement policy after policy in terms of cleaning up the domestic sector in Ukraine, but beyond that, alerting Americans, Brits, Canadians to the reality that the Ukrainian politicians and oligarchs were reliant on Western financial secrecy tools. So all of which is to say, if I was having a beer with Senator Graham, I would suggest maybe don't go to any politician directly, go to some of the civil society groups that have emerged. And I'm happy to provide names and contact information for them. And do you attribute this emerging civil society in Ukraine, this element you talk about, 
can America be credited with that? Because there have been anti-corruption drives led possibly by Joe Biden. There are elements of American support, funding, personnel, travel support, but so much of this was organic to Ukraine itself. I mean, so many of these are, you know, these civil society organizations, these broader anti-corruption groups that have emerged in Ukraine over the last maybe half dozen years or so. So much of them are a direct outgrowth of the successful 2014 revolution that obviously threw out uh, former President Yanukovych, who, as you <laughs> mentioned a moment ago, Freddie, was initially placed in power thanks to the help of Paul Manafort, uh, who is still here in the United States of America. But what we have seen is really this kind of post-Soviet generation that has emerged and realized that there are far how should I say, better ways, better avenues of governance than trying to recreate empire or trying to you know, gobble as many former state-held assets as possible. There are elements of this post-Soviet generation that are very clearly aligned with the broader pro-transparency, anti-corruption, at least ideals out of places like the United States. I mean, the issue at the end of the day and one of the areas that these Ukrainian reformers have been especially effective at is holding American officials' feet to the fire and forcing American officials to understand how American shell companies, American anonymous real estate purchases, anonymous American private equity investments, and high-end artwork purchases, et cetera, et cetera, how all of that has incentivized the rise and entrenchment of this oligarchic class. And again, not just in Ukraine, but elsewhere throughout the region, really forcing American officials to sit back and realize that I mean, well, American officials can be a little preachy at times and saying you need to clean up your mess over there. What these Ukrainian reformers have been especially effective at is realizing that mess doesn't exist in one country. That corruption is not remaining in one country. It relies on American financial secrecy tools, American offshoring networks. And God knows it would behoove American officials, as we have seen in recent months, to finally begin addressing that domestic creation of our own that has allowed for the, the flourishing and flowering of all these oligarchic networks around the world. Well, and it also creates a great deal of cynicism. I was in Ukraine last week and I spoke to quite a few Ukrainians and they are very cynical. Talking to a Brit, they were very keen to be pro-British, I think, but I think they just they were just being polite. But they were very cynical, or a couple of them were very cynical about America. And you can see where this cynicism comes from, because yeah. Yeah. after all, the money that's being stolen from them is ending up in yeah. places like Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't blame them for that cynicism whatsoever, Freddie. If I was Ukrainian and I was watching these oligarchs spend years and years looting health budgets and education budgets and infrastructure budgets and moving that money into the United States of America, I would be as cynical as the rest of them. I mean, hell, as an American, I'm as cynical as the rest of them, I suppose. And again, this gets back to what I was saying, why they have been so effective thus far in terms of highlighting less the kind of corruption as it's existed in Ukraine and more the responsibility and culpability of places like the United States of America and finally awakening American officials to the fact that there is so much that can and should be done right here in the United States. I don't think it's any surprise, Freddie, that over the last year, and especially over the last few months, Washington finally seemed, both the executive branch, both, both the White House and Congress, finally seems to have kind of sunk in this responsibility that the U.S. itself has created this broader kleptocratic mess that Ukrainian oligarchs, among so many others, have, have taken advantage of. You know, finally beginning to address the kinds of pro-anonymity policies and pro-kleptocracy policies that American real estate and American lawyers and American you know, private equity managers and auction house managers and luxury goods providers you know, all these different elements of financial secrecy networks and oligarchic networks, you know, all those Americans who are taking a slice of this oligarchic wealth to move and hide this money, 
Finally, it seems like Washington, as well as, frankly, London in the last week, is waking up to the reality on the ground that there's so much work that should be done at home before you can go to partners in Ukraine and finally say, okay, we've done our job, now you do yours. Yes. And I mean, particularly for Joe Biden, who back in 2014 was tasked with cleaning up corruption. And, you know, it's hard to raise this point without being accused of peddling a a Fox News talking point. But, you know, he was himself compromised by the fact his son, Hunter Biden, had a job, very well paid job with Burisma, which was a, a mining giant who's at the time whose leader never proven, I think, but whose owner was accused of corruption. Yeah, no, this is the, and I've written on, on Hunter Biden's offshoring networks and his recent turn, especially into becoming supposedly talented artist and what that tells us about the financial secrecy of the art world um, <laughs> and all the <laughs> lack of anti-money laundering policies therein. This is part and parcel why it's been so difficult for Western jurisdictions and Western diplomats to go anywhere in the region, to go to Ukraine, to go to Russia, to go to Kazakhstan, and with any kind of convincing position, say you need to clean up your domestic mess and your oligarchic mess in your country. I mean, I can't name you the former politicians, whether it's Gerhard Schroeder out of Germany, frankly, whether it's Tony Blair out of London and his work as an effective speechwriter for the Kazakh dictator after Blair left office. I mean, you see example after example after example of Western politician or Western family member or beyond that shell company provider or lawyer going and freely offering their services to these dictators, to these oligarchs. You know, there's this notion certainly a quaint notion, at least in the U.S., that the best thing to stop these figures from working for oligarchs and regimes elsewhere to launder their money, launder their reputations, the best thing is not legislation, not regulation, but but shame, right? This was the idea for many years ago, the creation of the U.S.'s initial lobbying transparency requirements. If, if you were working for a foreign regime, you'd have to disclose who you're working for, and you would be shamed into no longer working for them. And Boy, Freddie, I, I tell you, I, I don't know the last time I've seen shame work as an effective device for anyone in the U.S. or the broader West, which is why it's clear, and I, I've been writing on this over the past few weeks itself, along with some very talented colleagues, we need more legislation. We need more regulation, at least in the United States, to make sure to prevent former officials, their family members, their advisors from going to work for these kleptocrats, going to work for these regimes and selling their services to the highest bidder, regardless of their source of their income. Because at the end of the day, I mean, again, this is this is the national security crisis that has been a long time coming. Mm. This is an inflection point for so, so, so much. And, you know, obviously I'm grateful we're having the conversation today and listeners are being made more aware of the linkages between Western financial secrecy tools beyond that, former Western officials, you know, whitewashing these regimes as well. And what we're now seeing on the ground with a kleptocratic dictatorship out of Moscow doing whatever it wants to, thinking it can accomplish whatever it needs to in terms of military expansionism and death and destruction in places like Ukraine. And I can only hope that we finally began implementing some of these reforms that have been long overdue and finally learned some of the lessons and the linkages of how it is that we got here. It wasn't just Ukraine. It wasn't just Russia. It was this broader transnational kleptocratic mess that so many in the West happily created and profited from. Well, and so to achieve that shame, if achieve is the right word, you need transparency. And for transparency, you need, you know, a media doing its job properly. And a lot of the time in the last decade, two decades, that's been quite difficult, particularly we know a lot about British libel laws are used often to keep stories quiet. It can be very difficult to investigate this stuff. Firstly, just tell us a little bit doing your book. Have you run into lots of legal problems, libel threats? I am 
incredibly blessed for so many reasons to be an American, to be writing for primarily American audiences, to be using an American publisher, and to be describing so much of the phenomenon taking place in the U.S. Obviously, the U.S.'s First Amendment protections for journalists, the rights of a freedom of the press that uh, I know full well other jurisdictions, such as the United Kingdom, are not able to enjoy nearly as, as much. You know, all that said, Freddie, you know, you're exactly right regarding the explosion of legal threats against British investigative journalists covering these oligarchic figures out of Ukraine, out of Russia, out of Kazakhstan. I'm sure you saw just last week the Financial Times' very talented investigative journalist Tom Burgess taken to court by a series of Kazakh oligarchs, right? We're not even talking about Russians at this point. To say nothing of what other journalists like Catherine Belton, who's covered Putin's rise, had to deal with from lawsuits from oligarchs like Roman Abramovich. The U.S. isn't nearly in that position of threats facing journalists yet. The unfortunate reality, though, is that things are trending in that direction. We are seeing legal protections eroding, especially on the state level, and we are seeing an increased willingness to fund white shoe law firms in the U.S., in Washington and elsewhere to specifically target American investigative journalists looking into this. And again, I've been very fortunate that I haven't faced any formal legal threats as of yet. I've certainly been on the receiving end of threats of that nature, even though that hasn't been followed through. I have certainly been, you know, had plenty of conversations. I actually issued a formal report about two years ago for a group called the Free Russia Foundation, looking specifically at this phenomenon, some of that in the book itself, at that phenomenon of Russian and other post-Soviet oligarchs increasingly targeting American journalists, all of which ends up not only draining funds in terms of combating the lawsuits themselves, but resulting in things like self-censorship. You know, there's one journalist who told me about 50% of his reporting on one specific Russian oligarch had to be left on the cutting room floor because of concerns and threats about lawsuits. I mean, this is why I'm hoping that this invasion is such an inflection point for so much. It's not, I mean, Freddie, you're exactly, it's not just the financial secrecy mechanisms. It's also the broad allowances for these oligarchs to use and abuse Western legal systems or you know, whatever Western policy they would like, but especially as it pertains to targeting investigative journalists. Katie, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the Americano podcast. And I highly recommend everybody read your book, American Kleptocracy. It tells us a lot about what's going on. Freddie, thanks so much. And hopefully next time we won't uh, have to talk about such a depressing topic. Oh, I'd found it quite cheering. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There are at least some fun stories in the book, I promise. Yeah, it's a great book. Thank you very much, Casey. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 